Thank you, Samson. And that's it for this Friday, March 1st edition. This is VOA News. I'm Michael Brown. U.S. President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump visited the U.S.-Mexico border on Thursday, while Biden urged Congress to reconsider a bipartisan immigration bill that fell apart in the Senate. Trump focused on crimes committed by migrants. Migrant crime. We call it Biden migrant crime, but that's a little bit long. So we'll just leave it. But every time you hear the term migrant crime, you know where that comes from. Allowing thousands and thousands and actually millions and millions of people to come. Could be 15 million, could be 18 million by the time he uh, gets out of office because hopefully the biggest risk we have is nine months. That's a long time. A lot of bad things can happen. During Byron Biden's visit to Brownsville, Texas, he urged Trump to reverse his opposition to the bipartisan immigration bill. I understand my predecessor's legal pass today. So here's what I would say to Mr. Trump. Instead of playing politics with this issue, instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me, or I'll join you, in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. You know and I know. It's the toughest, most efficient, most effective border security bill this country has ever seen. So instead of playing politics with the issue, why don't we just get together and get it done? Immigration is expected to be a key issue in the November presidential election. For years, immigration policy has long been the issue that Washington lawmakers endlessly debated but can not ever come to a resolution on. Authorities say fire raced through a seven-story building in an upscale area of the Bangladeshi capital, Dhaka, Thursday night, killing at least 43 people, injuring dozens more. Firefighters brought the blaze under control in about two hours, according to authorities. The government has ordered an investigation into that deadly fire. For more news, please join us at voanews.com. This is VOA News. U.S. officials reacted with concern at the news of civilians killed while trying to get humanitarian aid in Gaza. We get more on the story from VOA's Jeff Custer. Speaking to reporters as he left the White House Thursday, U.S. President Joe Biden said they were still gathering information on the incident. And as he understood it, there were two versions of what happened. U.S. Agency for International Development Chief Samantha Powers, who was in the West Bank Thursday, said regardless of the circumstances, the incident should never have happened. I know investigations are underway to find out exactly, again, what happened today. But again, a core principle that applies everywhere USAID and our partners work around the world is that desperate civilians trying to feed their starving families should not be shot at. Jeff Custer, VOA News. AP correspondent Karen Chalmers now reports on the arrest of an editor of a top Russian independent newspaper. The editor of a well-known Russian independent newspaper has been detained after being accused of discrediting Russia's military. Sergei Sokolov is the editor of Novaya Gazeta. He was detained by officers from Russia's Center for Combating Extremism. It said the charges are related to an article printed by the newspaper. Administrative charges, such as those given to Sokolov, are usually punishable by a fine or a short prison sentence. The date of Sokolov's hearing is not yet known. I'm Karen Shamas. Here in the U.S., AP correspondent Ed Donahue now reports a young Pentagon leak suspect plans to change his plea. 
Pentagon League suspect Jack Texera is expected to plead guilty. Texera had previously pleaded not guilty. He is the Massachusetts Air National Guard member accused of leaking highly classified military documents about Russia's war in Ukraine and other sensitive national security topics on the social media platform Discord, which is popular with people who play online games. Investigators believe he led a private chat group called Thug Shaker Central. Court papers show the judge was asked to schedule a change of plea hearing next week. He's been behind bars for close to a year. Authorities haven't talked about a possible motive, but accounts of those in the online private chat group describe Texera as motivated more by bravado than ideology. I'm Ed Donahue. Heavy gunfire has paralyzed Haiti's capital. At least four police officers killed as a powerful gang leader announced he will try to capture the country's police chief and government ministers. The move comes with Prime Minister Ariel Henry arriving in Kenya on Thursday looking to finalize details for the deployment of a foreign armed force to help combat Haiti's criminal gangs. Gunmen shot at the country's main airport and other targets in a wave of violence Thursday that caught many by surprise. For more news, please join us. VOANews.com. I'm Michael Brown, VOA News. Palestinians as a convoy delivers aid. I think this is a nightmare. I think the violence must stop. I think civilians can not be targeted. Elections in Iran, but many say they won't vote. Because they view their choice not to participate as a way to challenge the government's legitimacy. And a new anaconda species is identified in the Amazon. That snake is a very big snake. It's a little hard to judge the length. It's certainly over 20 feet. Today is Friday, March 1st, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Scott Walterman. In the pre-dawn hours of Thursday, thousands of Palestinians gathered in Gaza City on rumors an aid convoy was coming. When it arrived, people desperate for food and water rushed the trucks and Israeli troops fired on the crowd, according to witnesses. Here's Associated Press correspondent Karen Chalmers. Witnesses say Israeli troops have fired on a crowd of Palestinians waiting for aid in Gaza City, killing over 100 people and wounding hundreds more. In nearby Shiva Hospital, patients lay bloodied on mattresses on the floor. Injured Palestinian Kamel Abu Nahal told the AP that Israeli soldiers started shooting at desperate crowds of people waiting for aid. After they stopped shooting, we went back to get our aid. By the time I got flour and some canned goods, and took it down from the truck, they shot at us. They shot me and the truck driver left and ran over my leg. Lying on the floor, frustrated and exhausted, he added, If you want to get us aid this way, then you might as well not bring anything. I'm Karen Shamas. Now, the Israeli military says it did not conduct an airstrike in northern Gaza, but was there to make sure the convoy traveled safely to the distribution point. Here's Israeli military spokesman Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari during a briefing at which he showed reporters a video of the incident. As you can see in this video, the tanks that were there to secure the convoy 
sees the Gazans being trampled and cautiously tries to disperse the mob with a few warning shots. When the hundreds became thousands and things got out, out of hand, the tank commander decided to retreat to avoid harm to the thousands of Gazans that were there. The United Nations Security Council convened in a closed meeting on Thursday to deliberate the incident. Before the meeting, the Palestinian UN ambassador, Riyad Mansour, addressed reporters. We hope that the Security Council elevate itself to produce a product to express their outrage and the condemnation of this massacre and, you know, to... Uh, to hold those uh, responsible to an account. Joining us now from the United Nations is VOA's Margaret Bashir. So the Security Council met behind closed doors about this. Um, what, what do we know about what happened in there? Well, the Arab countries called an emergency meeting of the Security Council late Thursday after this incident with the aid convoy uh, where more than 100 Palestinians were killed, scores were injured in what each side is, is giving a different version of events. Uh, so the Arab group, uh, which is represented by Algeria on the council, asked for this closed meeting. Uh, ambassadors were behind closed doors for over an hour and a half. Um, the Palestinian envoy spoke to reporters while they were inside, and he said that uh, the aid incident was an outrageous massacre. And he said that dozens of people had bullets in their heads, which is what uh, they were told by their by their um, medical staff on the scene. And he said that the killing was intentional. Uh, other council members are said they are waiting to see the results of an investigation to know what exactly happened on Thursday morning. And uh, the council failed to agree on any sort of a statement condemning the incident because uh, the one that was presented by Algeria named Israel as the perpetrator and some diplomats said that they did not yet have all the facts surrounding the incident. So what are they asking the council to do? Well, they wanted a condemnation and they didn't get it, but it doesn't mean that it won't come. They're just waiting for there to be, you know, it's it's uh, it was a chaotic incident, a chaotic day, different viewpoints, different uh, variations on what happened. So there needs to be, um, the air needs to be cleared and things need to be more clear and concrete. And there could still be some sort of uh, statement from the council. In the meantime, the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, she's uh, traveling this week. He's in the Caribbean at a summit, and he said that he was shocked by the incident. And he also said that a situation like this needs an effective independent investigation to know how it was possible and who's responsible for it. VOA's Margaret Bashir in New York at the UN. Staying in the Middle East, Iranian voters go to the polls Friday to choose members of parliament. The elections are the first since the crackdown on the mass protests in 2022. Some Iranians are expected to participate in the election, but others are expected to boycott the vote because they say government critics have been effectively banned from the ballot. VOA's Heather Murdoch reports from Istanbul. On Friday, Iran holds its first parliamentary elections since mass protests led by women and young adults were crushed. 
in a nationwide crackdown in 2022. More than 22,000 people were detained and 500 were killed. In the run-up to the vote, Iranian leaders urged the public to participate as dissidents called for a boycott after the mass disqualification of candidates who were not members of conservative, pro-government parties. Statisticians predict a historically low turnout at the ballot. Analysts say many people will not vote because they view their choice not to participate as a way to challenge the government's legitimacy. This is Nesan Rafati, the International Crisis Group's senior analyst for Iran. The critics of the, uh, the system say that, look, you know, what's the point of even uh, engaging in this um, in this process that is not going to result in any meaningful changes or, or allow for, for much diversity of, of uh, views. And because the system is so um, uh, adamant on participation rates as a, as a metric for its legitimacy, uh, a boycott would basically take away um, that, uh, that claim. These elections will decide members of Iran's 290-seat parliament and its 88-seat assembly of experts, the governmental body expected to choose the country's next supreme leader. As current supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei approaches his 85th birthday. Again, here's Rafati. The position of the supreme leader, I mean, it's in the name, uh, ultimately has a, a profound influence over the, the country's domestic and foreign policy as the ultimate arbiter, as the ultimate uh, finger on the scales of what decisions the, the president and the parliament and the National Security Council um, takes. Because reformist candidates have been virtually eliminated from the ballot, he says. Iran's next supreme leader is expected to maintain the government's conservative or hardline stance. But for many Iranians, the demands of protesters during the unrest in 2022 that was sparked by the death of Masa Amini in police custody remain unanswered. Besides issues of personal freedom and sustenance, Iran's economic crisis has led to widespread discontent. Benedict Vigers is a consultant for Gallup World Poll and the lead author of Thursday's report, Iran Votes, Lukewarm on Leadership, Cool on Economy. In 2023, just 15% of Iranians said that it was a good time to find a job in their area, while 80% said it wasn't a good time to find a job. And a further 61% say when asked um, how they're finding life on their present household income, 61% of uh, Iranians say that they are currently finding it difficult or very difficult to get by uh, on their present incomes. He says that in recent years, Iran has seen roughly 40% inflation, and more and more young people say they wish to travel abroad for their futures. Other analysts say while the upcoming elections are not expected to usher in any immediate sweeping changes, it can be expected that protest movements will arise again. Heather Murdoch, VOA News, Istanbul. We're following these other stories from around the world. The Bahamas, Bangladesh, Barbados, Benin, and Chad have formally notified the UN of their intent to contribute personnel 
to an international force to help Haitian national police fight armed gangs. UN Humanitarian Coordinator for Haiti, Ulrika Richardson. We see, um, obviously, a very steep increase in uh, people on that flee their homes. They have to abandon everything and basically uh, either sleep on the street, be hosted by host communities. The first meeting of the year of finance ministers from the group of 20 top economies ended Thursday without a joint statement. Host Brazilian finance minister Fernando Haddad said it was because members were divided over ongoing geopolitical conflicts without explicitly mentioning the wars in Ukraine and Gaza, the two main points dividing the group. At least 44 people were killed and dozens injured after a fire swept through a seven-story building in an upscale neighborhood in the Bangladeshi capital, Dhaka, late Thursday. Fire Department official Mohammed Shaib said the blaze originated in a popular biryani restaurant. Turkey and Italy are seeking to expand their influence in Africa, economically and diplomatically. Analysts say both nations see opportunities as French influence on the continent declines, creating common ground for cooperation between Rome and Ankara. Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. The Somali parliament's ratification this month of an agreement with Turkey to provide naval protection and assistance in building a Somali navy is one of a series of steps in Turkey's efforts to expand its African presence. At the same time, Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni last month hosted African leaders for the unveiling of plans to expand Italian influence on the continent. Alicia Cariati is with IAI, or Institute of International Affairs, a think tank in Rome. Italy is trying to fulfill a position that the Western countries in some way uh, left during the last during the last decades, while Turkey uh, has been already in, in Africa and uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. Maloney met with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan in January. Their talks on Africa focus on cooperation in Libya, where Turkey has considerable influence, including a military base. The North African country is a main transit route for migrants trying to enter Europe, mainly through Italy. Ailem Erige, the picture Olu of the African Studies Department of Ankara Social Sciences University. This is a huge threat for Italy, a huge threat for France, um, because uh, the African companies use those Western African companies as a transit uh, on their way to Europe. The possibility of exploiting Libya's vast energy reserves also provides common ground between Rome and Ankara. Analysts say the recent ousting of governments sympathetic to France in Niger, Mali and Gabon and the withdrawal of French forces from parts of Africa have severely weakened France's long-time political and economic influence in the region, opening opportunities for Italy and Turkey. Dorian Jones, VOA News, Istanbul. A former U.S. ambassador says he will plead guilty to charges of serving as a secret agent for communist Cuba going back decades. The development Thursday brings an unexpectedly fast resolution to a case prosecutors described as one of the most brazen betrayals in the history of the U.S. Foreign Service. Manuel Roca, who's 73 years old, 
told a judge Thursday he would admit to federal counts of conspiring to act as an agent of a foreign government, charges that could put him behind bars for several years. Prosecutors allege Roca engaged in clandestine activity on Cuba's behalf since at least 1981. He'll be back in court, or is due to be back in court, April 12th. France is poised to become the first country to inscribe the right to have an abortion in its constitution. Lawmakers from the Senate and lower house meet at the Versailles Palace on Monday for a final vote on the measure after the French Senate approved it on Wednesday. Lisa Bryant has the story from Paris. Annie Shemla has never had an abortion, but she has fought for those who did. She's just published a book about her experience as an abortion rights activist in the early 1970s. She says abortion was once illegal in France, and many women helped other women to have dangerous abortions with knitting needles or paid large sums to doctors to perform them. Or, Shemla says, they traveled to Britain or the Netherlands where abortion was legal. Abortion was legalized in France in 1975. There has been no serious effort to overturn the French legislation, but supporters of legalized abortion worry it could happen after the United States Supreme Court voted to overturn a half-century-old court decision guaranteeing abortion rights, commonly known as Roe v. Wade. Shemla says the fact that Roe v. Wade was overturned was a shock for pro-abortion activists like herself. If it was possible in the U.S., she says, then it's possible in France. Last year, French President Emmanuel Macron pledged to include abortion rights in the Constitution. On Wednesday, French senators passed a softer measure, guaranteeing the freedom to abort after the lower chamber passed the same legislation in January. Still, many called it an historic vote. Polls show the majority of people surveyed in this country, once a bastion of Catholicism, support the constitutional change. Lisa Bryant, VOA News, Paris. VOA's International Edition continues. I'm Scott Walterman. Another month, another heat record. Yes. February 2024 will likely have the highest global average temperature ever recorded for that month when the numbers are crunched in the next few days. Here's Reuters correspondent Christy Kilburn. The month of February saw cherry blossoms bloom early in Japan, bare ski slopes in Europe, and raging wildfires in Texas and Chile. While data has not been finalized, scientists tell Reuters that February 2024 is on track to have the highest global average temperature ever recorded for that month. Thanks to fossil fuel-driven climate change and warming in the eastern Pacific Ocean, known as El Nino. If confirmed, that would be the ninth consecutive monthly temperature record to be broken. According to data from the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA,
Here's Karen Gleason, an atmospheric scientist at the agency, speaking to Reuters earlier in February. What people should probably take to heart more than individual records or a short streak of record temperatures is that 23 of the 24 warmest years on record have all occurred since 2001, with the last 10 years being the warmest 10 years on record. Gleason says El Nino is expected to dissipate by mid-2024 and could shift to La Nina, a cooling in the eastern Pacific. That could help break the hot streak toward the end of the year. Still, NOAA predicts a 22% chance that 2024 will break 2023's record as the hottest year. Reuters correspondent Christy Kilburn. And finally, you know, with everything we know, with all the research we have, you'd think we'd have found everything there is to find on Earth. But you'd be wrong. A new green anaconda species has been found in the Amazon. What we were there to do wasn't actually to look for a new species. It was one of these things of science where, you know, a bit of serendipity of finding one thing while you're there to do another. Because what we were there to do is use the anacondas as an indicator species for what kind of damage is being done by the oil spills that are plaguing the Asuni in Ecuador because the oil extraction is absolutely out of control. That's Professor Brian Fry from the University of Queensland who led an expedition with Will Smith in eastern Ecuador to get samples of anaconda populations. The local tribe allowed access one of the few times since the tribe's first contact in 1958. And that we were able to show that the two species split from each other almost 10 million years ago, which is, of course, a vast period of time for them to be isolated. But the really amazing part was, despite this genetic difference and despite their long period of divergence, the two animals are completely identical. The discovery took place as part of a broader study Fry and Dutch professor Freek J. Vonk were carrying out on the impact oil spills are having in the Amazon. The researchers collected samples from anacondas across nine countries. Anacondas are definitely struggling at the moment. Like, I'm sure you've seen over the last few months the stories coming out of the crippling drought that's hitting across the Amazon and absolutely catastrophic. Well, the bigger the animal, the more stressed out they're going to be. And big snakes need big water. So with your megafauna like anacondas, these are going to be the first ones that are really going to suffer. Video shared by the researchers showed Vonk swimming next to a southern green anaconda, estimated at more than eight meters long, and more than 200 kilos. That snake is a very big snake. It's a little hard to judge the length. I think to call it 26 feet might be a bit of an exaggeration, but it's definitely one of the biggest anacondas ever filmed. The research disentangling the anacondas, revealing a new green species and rethinking yellows was published at MDPI Journal. This has been International Edition on the Voice of America. On behalf of everyone at VOA, thank you so much for spending the time with us. For pictures, stories, videos, and more, follow VOA News on your favorite social media platform and online at voanews.com. In Washington, 
I'm Scott Walterman. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The United States condemns Russia's unjust sentencing of renowned human rights activist Oleg Orlov. Orlov is the co-chair of the Nobel Prize-winning organization Memorial, whose mission is documenting the atrocities and repression of the Stalin era and subsequent Soviet rule, as well as promoting and protecting human rights for Russian citizens today. Memorial has been a target of Vladimir Putin's government for years, resulting in the forced closure of key parts of the organization. Oleg Orlov was vocal in denouncing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. As a result, in 2023, he was charged with repeated discrediting of the Russian army, and a court fined him 150,000 rubles, about $1,600. As U.S. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller observed February 27th, Russian authorities, dissatisfied by the punishment, sought a redo. The outcome? Mr. Orlov was sentenced today to two and a half years in prison simply for peacefully and courageously speaking out against Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. Ambassador Tracy joins diplomats from 17 other countries to bear witness to this latest miscarriage of justice in Putin's Russia, which Orlov aptly described as Kafka-esque. Orlov's sentencing took place just days after the world learned of the death in an Arctic prison of Putin's chief political rival, Alexei Navalny, who had been sentenced to 30 years behind bars. The verdict for Orlov, as Mr. Miller pointed out, also fell on the ninth anniversary of the assassination of opposition leader and democracy advocate Boris Nemtsov. Like Alexei Navalny, Nemtsov was a clarion voice for reform and accountability who Putin targeted for his activism. A former deputy prime minister of Russia, Nemtsov devoted his life to improving the lives of his fellow citizens until he was gunned down in the shadow of the Kremlin. Spokesperson Miller noted that Nemtsov's commitment to democracy continues to be an inspiration to other politicians and rights activists in Russia, including Nemtsov's protege and courageous leader Vladimir Karamurza, now languishing in a Russian prison. The United States strongly condemns the Kremlin's escalating domestic repression, declared spokesperson Miller. Together with our allies and partners, the United States will continue to insist Russian authorities immediately release the more than 680 political prisoners they continue to hold. And we reiterate today our support for Russia's courageous citizens who continue to work toward a better future for the Russian people. That was an editorial 